Chapter 5 of The Lust of Hate by Guy Newell Boothby. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter 5 The Wreck of the Fiji Princess. That afternoon I was sitting in my usual place on the fore hatch, smoking and thinking about our next port of call, and what a miserable figure I should cut before the ship's company if by any chance I should be arrested there. I became conscious that someone had come along the hurricane deck and was leaning on the rails gazing down at me. I looked up to discover that it was none other than Miss Maybourne. Directly she saw that I was aware of her presence, she moved towards the ladder on the port side and came down it towards where I sat. Her dress was of some dark blue material, probably serge, and was cut in such a fashion that it showed a beautiful figure to the very best advantage. A sweeter picture of an English maiden of gentle birth than she presented as she came down the steps it would have been difficult to find. Kindness and sincerity were the chief characteristics of her face, and I felt a thrill of pride run through me as I reflected that she owed her life to me. When she came up to where I stood, for I had risen on seeing her approaching me, she held out her hand with a frank gesture and said as she looked me in the eyes, Mr. Rexford, you saved my life the night before last, and this is the first opportunity I have had of expressing my gratitude to you. I cannot tell you how grateful I am, but I ask you to believe that so long as I live, I shall never cease to bless you for your heroism. To return an answer to such a speech would not seem a difficult matter at first thought, and yet I have found it harder than I would at any other time to have imagined to let her see that I did not want to be thanked, and at the same time not to appear churlish. It was a very difficult matter. However, I stumbled out some sort of a reply, then asked her how she had managed to fall overboard in that extraordinary fashion. I really cannot tell you, she answered without hesitation. I was leaning against the rails of the hurricane deck, talking to Miss Dursley and Mr Spicer, and something behind me gave way, and then over I went backwards into the water. Well, you can't imagine the feeling of utter helplessness that came over me as I rose to the surface and saw the great ship steaming away. They knew nobody sprang into my assistance, and once more hope came into my heart. But for you, I might now be dead, floating about in the depths of that great sea. Oh, it's an awful thought. She trembled like a leaf at the notion, and swept her pretty hands across her face as if to brush away the thought of such a thing. It's a very narrow escape, I said. I must confess myself that I thought the boat would never reach us. And yet how cool and collected you were. It would have meant certain death to have been anything else, she answered. My father will be indeed grateful to you when he hears of your bravery. I am his only child, and if anything were to happen to me, I don't think he would survive the shock. I'm very grateful to Providence for having given me such an opportunity of averting so terrible a sorrow, I said. But I fear, like everyone else, you attach too much importance to what I did. I simply acted as any other decent man would have done, had he been placed in a similar position. You do not do yourself justice, she said. At any rate, you have the satisfaction of knowing, if it is any satisfaction to you, Agnes Maybourne owes her life to you, and that she will never forget the service you have rendered her. The conversation was growing embarrassing. So I turned it into another channel as soon as possible. At the same time, I wanted to find out something which had been puzzling me 
ever since I had first seen her face, and that was where I had met her before. When I put the question, she looked at me in surprise. Do you know, Mr. Rexford, she said, that I was going to ask you that self-same question, and for a rather strange reason. On the night before we sailed, you must understand I was sleeping at the house of an aunt who lives a few miles outside Southampton. I went to bed at ten o'clock after a rather exciting day, feeling very tired. Almost as soon as my head was upon the pillow, I fell asleep and did not wake again until about half past twelve o'clock. And I suddenly found myself wide awake, sitting up in bed, with a man's pale and agonised face staring at me from the opposite wall. For a few moments I thought I must be still asleep and dreaming, or else seeing a phantom. Almost before I could have counted five, it faded away, and I saw no more of it. From that time forward, like yourself, I was haunted with a desire to remember if I had ever seen the man's face before, and if so, where? You may imagine my surprise, therefore, when I found the owner of it sitting before me on the hatch of the very steamer that was about to take me to South Africa. Can you account for it? Not in the least, I answered. Mine was very much the same sort of experience, only that I was wide awake and driving down a prosaic London street when it happened. I too was endeavouring to puzzle it out the other day, when I looked up and found you standing on the deck above me. Seems most uncanny. It must have been a warning from Providence to us, which we have not the wit to understand. A warning it certainly was, I said truthfully, but hardly in the fashion she meant, and one of the most extraordinarily ever vouchsafed to mortal man. A fortunate one for me, she answered with a smile, and offering me her dainty little hand, she bade me good-bye, went up the steps again to the hurricane deck. From that time forward, I saw a great deal of Miss Mabel, so much so that we soon found ourselves upon comparatively intimate terms. Though I believed to others she was inclined to be a little bit haughty, to me she was invariably kindness and courtesy itself. Nothing could have been more pleasant than her manner when we were together, and as you may be very sure, after all that I had lately passed through, I could properly appreciate her treatment of me. To be taken out of my miserable state of depression and after so many years of ill fortune, to be treated with consideration and respect, made me feel towards her as I had never done towards a woman in my life before. I could have fallen at her feet and kissed her shoes in gratitude for the luxury of my conversation with her. It was the luckiest chance for both of us when I went aft that night to see the photograph in the second officer's cabin. Had I not been there, I should in all probability never have heard Miss Maybourne shriek as she went over the side, and in that case she would most certainly have been drowned, for I knew that unaided and weighted down by her wet clothes as she was, she could never have kept afloat till the boat reached her. Strange as it may seem, I could not help deriving a sort of satisfaction from this thought. It was evident that my refusal to accept the captain's kind offer to take possession for the rest of the voyage, the vacant berth aft, had created a little surprise amongst the passengers but I still believe it prejudiced the majority in my favour. At any rate, I soon discovered that my humble position forward was to make no sort of difference in their treatment of me, and many an enjoyable pipe I smoked, and twice as many talks I had with one and another sitting on the cable range, or leaning over the bows watching the vessel's nose, cutting its way through the clear green water. One morning after breakfast, I was forward, watching the effect just mentioned, 
as usual thinking what sensations would be if i should be arrested in tenerife when i heard footsteps behind me and looking round i discovered miss maybourne and the skipper coming towards me good morning mr rexford said the former holding out her hand what a constant student of nature you are to be sure every morning lately i have seen you standing where you are now looking across the sea my curiosity could hold out no longer so this morning i asked captain hawkins to escort me up here in order that i might ask you what you see i am afraid you will hardly be repaid for your trouble miss maybourne i answered with a smile as the captain after shaking hands with me and wishing me good morning left us to speak to one of the officers who had come forward in search of him but surely you must see something king neptune or at least a mermaid she persisted you are always watching the water perhaps i do see something i answered bitterly yes i think you're right when i look over the sea like that i'm watching a man's wasted life i see him starting on his race with everything in his favour that the world can give i see a school career of mediocrity and a university life devoid of any sort of success i can see a continuity of profitless wanderings about the world in the past and i am beginning to believe that i can make out another just commencing disgrace behind disgrace ahead i think that is the picture i bore me when i look across the sea miss maybourne it is an engrossing but hardly pretty one is it you're referring to your own life i suppose she said quietly well all i can say is from what i have seen of you i should consider that you are hardly the man to do yourself justice god forbid i answered if i were to do that it would be impossible for me to live no i endeavour as far as i am able to forget what my past has been she approached a step closer to me and placed her little white hand on my arm as it lay on the bullock before her mr rexford she said with an earnestness i had not hitherto noticed in her i hope you will not consider me impertinent if i say that i should like to know your history believe me i do not say this out of idle curiosity because i hope and believe that it may be in my power to help you remember what a debt of gratitude i owe you for your bravery the other night i cannot believe that a man who would risk his life as you did then and be the sort of man you have just depicted you feel that you can trust me sufficiently to tell me about yourself what is there to tell with certain reservations of course you shall hear there is no one i would confess so readily to as yourself i will not insult you by asking you to let what i tell you remain a secret between us but i will ask you not to try to judge me too harshly you may be sure i shall not do that she replied and then realizing what her words implied she hung her head with a pretty show of confusion i saw what was passing in her mind and to help her out of her difficulty i plunged into the story of my miserable career i told her of my old home in cornwall of my mother's death father's antipathy to me on that account of my eton and oxford life i dwelt but lightly winding up with the reason of my being sent down and the troubles at home that followed close upon it i described my bush life in australia and told her of the great disappointment which i had been subjected over the gold mine suppressing bartram's name and saying nothing of the hatred i had entertained for him after that i said in conclusion i decided that i was tired of australia and having inherited a little money from my father came home intending to get something to do and settle down in london but i very soon got tired of england as i tired of every other place and hence my reason for going out to seek my fortune in south africa i think i have given you a pretty good idea of my past it's not an edifying history is it 
Seems to me a parson might moralise very satisfactorily upon it. It is very, very sad, she answered. Oh, Mr. Rexford, how bitterly you must regret your wasted opportunities. Regret, I said. The saddest word in the English language. Yes, I think I do regret. You only think, are you not sure? From your tale, one would suppose you were very sorry. Yes, I think I regret, but how can I be certain? The probabilities are that if I had my chance over again, I should do exactly the same. As Gordon, the Australian poet, sings, For good undone and gifts misspent in resolutions vain, to somewhat late to trouble, this I know, I should live the same life if I had to live again, and the chances are I go where most men go. It's not a pretty thought, perhaps, to think that one's bad actions are the outcome of a bad nature, but one is compelled to own that that is true. You mustn't talk like that, Mr. Rexford, she cried. Indeed you mustn't. In all probability you have a long life before you, and who knows what the future may have in store for you. All this trouble that you have suffered may be but to fit you for some great success in after life. There can never be any success for me, Miss Mabel. I said more bitterly than I believe I had spoken yet. There is no chance at all of that. Success and I parted company long since, and can never be reconciled to each other again. To the end of my days I shall be a lonely, homeless man without ambition, without hope and without faith in any single thing. God knows I am paying dearly for all I have done and all that I have failed to do. But there is still time for you to retrieve everything. Surely that must be the happiest thought in this frail world of ours. God in his mercy gives us a chance to atone for whatever we have done and miss. Believe me, I can quite realise what you feel about yourself. At the same time, from what I have seen of you, I expect you to make more of it than it really deserves. Oh no, I can never paint what I have done in black enough colours. I am a man eternally disgraced. You try and comfort me in your infinite compassion, but you can never take away from me, try how you will, the awful skeleton that keeps me company night and day. I mean the recollection of the past. She looked at me with tears of compassion in her lovely eyes. I glanced at her face and turned away and stared across the sea. Never in my life before had hope seemed so dead in my heart. Now, for the first time, I realised in all its naked horror the effect of the dastardly deed I had committed. Henceforward, I was a social leper, condemned to walk the world crying, unclean, unclean. I am so sorry, so very sorry for you, Miss Maybourne said after a little pause that followed my last speech. You cannot guess how much your story has affected me. It is also very terrible to see a man so richly endowed as yourself cast down with such despair. You must fight against it, Mr. Rexford. It cannot be as bad as you think. I'm afraid I am past all fighting now, Miss Maybourne, I answered, but I will try if you bid me to do so. As I spoke, I looked at her again. This time her eyes met mine, fearlessly, but as they did so, a faint blush suffused her face. I bid you try, she said very softly. God give you grace and grant you may succeed. If anything can make me succeed, I replied, it will be your good wishes. I will do my best and man cannot do more. You have cheered me up wonderfully and I thank you from the bottom of my heart. You must not do that. I hope now I shall not see you looking any more across the sea in the same way that you were this morning. You are to cheer up and I shall insist that you report progress to me every day. If I discover any relapse, remember, 
I shall not spare you, and my anger will be terrible. Now, good-bye. I see my uncle signalling to me from the hurricane deck. It's time for me to read to him. Good-bye, I said, and may God bless you for your kindness to one who really stood in want of it. After that conversation, I set myself to take a more hopeful view of my situation. I told myself that provided I managed to reach my destination undetected, I would work as never a man had worked before to make an honourable place for myself among those with whom my lot should be cast. The whole of the remainder of my life, I vowed, God helping me, should be devoted to the service of my fellow creatures, and then on the strength of their respect and esteem, I would be able to face whatever punishment providence should degree as the result of my sin. In the strength of this firm resolve, I found myself becoming a happier man than I had been for years past. By this time we had left Madeira behind us, and were fast approaching Tenerife. In another day and a half, at the longest calculation, I should know my fate. That night I had been smoking for some time on the forecastle, but after supper, feeling tired, had gone to my bunk at an early hour than usual. For some reason my dreams were the reverse of good, and more than once I woke up in a fright, imagining myself in danger. To such a state of nervousness did this fright at last bring me, that unable to sleep any longer, I got out of bed and dressed myself. When I was fully attired, I sought the deck to discover a fine starlight night with a nice breeze blowing. I made my way to my usual spot forward, and leaning on the bullet looked down at the sea. We were now in the region of phosphorant water, and the liquid round the boat's cut water sparkled and glimmered as if decked with a million diamonds. The apex of the bows in the lookout stood while black and silent behind him, the great ship showed twice its real size in the darkness. The lamps shone brilliantly from the port and starboard lighthouses, and I could just manage to distinguish the officer of the watch, pacing up and down the bridge with the regularity of an automaton. There was something about the silence, and that swift rushing through the water, for we must have been doing a good sixteen knots, that was most exhilarating. For something like an hour, I stood and enjoyed it. My nervousness soon left me, and to my delight I found that I was beginning to feel sleepy again. At the end of the time stated, I made my way towards the ladder, leading from the top gallant forecastle to the spar deck, intending to go below. Just as I reached it, a man appeared from the shadow of the alleyway, approached the bell and struck three strokes, half past one upon it. The same instant the lookout called, All's well. The words were scarcely out of his mouth before there was a shuddering and grinding crash forward, then a sudden stoppage and heeling over of the great craft. After that, a dead ghastly silence, in which the beating of one's heart could be distinctly heard. The confusion of the next few minutes can be better imagined and described. The vessel had slipped off and cleared herself from the obstruction, or whatever it was that had caught her. There was no going on her way again, but at reduced speed. I heard the skipper open his cabin door and run up the ladder to the bridge, shouting, What's happened? The officer of the watch replied, but at the same instant the sailors and firemen off duty came pouring out of the forecastle, shouting, She's sinking, she's sinking. The engine room telegraph had meanwhile been rung, and the ship was perceptibly stopping. I stood where I was, wondering all the time what I had better do. Every man to his station, bellowed the skipper, coming to the rails of the bridge and funnelling his mouth with his hands so that his voice might be heard above the din. Be steady, men. I remember that the first man who gives any trouble, I shall shoot without warning. 
and turning to the chief officer he signed him to take the carpenter and hasten forward in an endeavour to ascertain the nature of the injuries the vessel had received by this time all the passengers were on deck the women pale and trembling and the men daring to calm and reassure them as well as they were able i made my way up the ladder to the hurricane deck and as i did so felt the vessel give a heavy lurch and then sink a little deeper in the water a moment later the chief officer and carpenter crossed the well and hurried up the ladder to the bridge we all waited in silence for the verdict that meant life or death to everybody ladies and gentlemen said the skipper coming down from the bridge after a short conversation with them and approaching the anxious group by the chart room door i'm sorry to have to tell you that the ship has struck a rock and in a short time will be no longer habitable for us i want however to reassure you there is ample boat accommodation for twice the number of our ship's company so that you need have no possible fear about leaving her how long it will be before we must go i cannot say there is a strong bulkhead between us and the water which may stand long enough for us to reach Tenerife, which is only about a hundred miles distant i think however it would be better for us to be prepared for any emergency the ladies will therefore remain on deck while the gentlemen go down to their cabins and bring them such warm clothing as they can find the night is cold and in case we may have to take to the boats before morning it will be well for everybody to make themselves as warm as possible Without more ado, the male portion of the passengers ran down the stairway to the saloon like so many rabbits, I following at the heels to see if I could be of assistance. Into the cabins we rushed at random, collecting such articles of apparel as we could find, and carrying them on deck with all possible haste. The necessity for speed was so great that we did not pause to make selection or to inquire as to ownership, we took what we could lay our hands on, and were thankful for the find. In the cabin I entered, I noticed a pair of cork jackets pushed under a bunk. I dragged them out and heaped them on top of the other things I collected. Then a sudden inspiration seized me. On the rack in the saloon, I had noticed a large flask. I took possession of it, and then collecting the other things I had found, ran onto the deck again. I could not have been gone half a minute, but even in that short space of time, a change had come over the ship. Her bows were lower in the water, well, I trembled when I thought of the result of the strain on the bulkhead. I found Miss Maybourne standing just where I had first seen her, at a little distance from the others, after the chart room, and beside the engine room skylight. She was fully dressed, and had a little girl of eight with her, the only daughter of a widow named Bailey, of whom she was very fond. Miss Maybourne, I cried, throwing down the things I had brought onto the deck as I spoke, and selecting a thick jacket for the heap, I found these clothes in a cabin. I don't know who they belong to, but you must put on as much as you can wear. She obeyed me, willingly enough, and when I had buttoned up the last garment, I insisted on her putting on one of the cork life belts. As soon as she was clothed, I put another garment on the child and attached the second life belt to her body. It was too big for her to wear, but fastened round her shoulders, I knew it would answer the same purpose. But yourself, Mr. Rexford, cried Miss Maybourne, who saw my condition. You must find a cork jacket for yourself, or you will be drowned. At the very instant that I was going to answer her, the vessel came for a sudden pitch, and before the boats could be lowered or anything be done for the preservation of the passengers, she began to sink rapidly. Seeing that it was so hopeless to wait for the boats, I dragged my two companions to the ladder leading to the after spar deck. 
When I reached it, I tore down the rail just at the spot where Miss Maybourne had fallen overboard on the Spanish coast a few nights before, and this done, bade them jump into the sea without losing time. Miss Maybourne did so without a second thought. The child, however, hung back, cried piteously for mercy, but with the ship sinking so rapidly under us, to hesitate I knew was to be lost. So I caught her by the waist, and regardless of her screams, threw her over the side. Then, without waiting to see her rise again, I dived in myself. The whole business, from the moment of the first crash to the time of our springing overboard, had not lasted five minutes. One thing was self-evident. The bulkhead could not have possessed the strength with which it had been credited. On coming to the surface again, I shook myself and looked about me. Behind me was the great vessel, with her decks up by this time almost on a level with the water. In another instant she would be gone. True enough, before I had time to take half a dozen strokes, there was a terrific explosion. The next instant I was being sucked down and down by the sinking ship. How far I went, or how long I was beneath the waves, I have no possible idea. I only know that if it had lasted much longer, I should never have lived to reach the surface again, or to tell this tale. But after a little while, I found myself rising to the surface, surrounded by wreckage of all sorts and description. On reaching the top, I looked about me for the boats I felt sure I should discover. But to my surprise, I could not distinguish one. Was it possible that the entire company of the vessel could have gone down with her? The thought was a terrible one, and almost unnerved me. I raised myself in the water as well as I was able. As I did so, I caught sight of two people within a few yards of me. I swam towards them, and to my joy discovered that they were Miss Maybourne and the child upon whom I had fastened the cork life preservers a few minutes before. Oh, Mr. Rexford, cried Miss Maybourne in an agonised voice, what are we to do? This poor child is either dead or nearly so, and I can see no signs of any boat at all. We must continue swimming for a little while, I answered, and then we may perhaps be picked up. Surely we cannot be the only survivors. Oh, my poor uncle, she cried, can he have perished? Oh, it's too awful. The cork lifeboats were keeping them up famously on that score, and I felt no anxiety at all. But still, the situation was about as desperate as well it could be. I had not the least notion of where we were, and I knew that unless we were picked up, we should be better drowned at once and continue to float till we died of starvation. However, I was not going to frighten my only conscious companion by such gloomy anticipations, so I passed my arm round the child's waist and bade Miss Mabel to strike out for the spot where the ill-fated Fiji princess had gone down. At the same time, I asked her to keep her eyes open for a boat, or at least a spar of some sort, upon which we could support ourselves until we could find some safer refuge. On the horrors of that ghastly swim, it will not be necessary for me to dilate. I must leave my readers to imagine for themselves. Suffice it that for nearly a quarter of an hour we paddled aimlessly about here and there. But look as we might, not a sign of any other living soul from aboard that ship could we discover or anything large enough upon which three people could rest. At last, just as I was beginning to despair of saving the lives of those whom Providence had so plainly entrusted to my care, I saw ahead of us a large white object, which upon nearer approach proved to be one of the overturned lifeboats. I conveyed the good news to Miss Maybourne, and then with a new burst of energy swam towards it and caught hold of the keel. She was a big craft, to my delight, rode high enough in the water to afford us a resting place. Pulled myself and the child I carried on to her, 
and to drag Miss Maybourne up after me was the work of a very few moments. Once there, we knew we were safe for the present. End of chapter 5